0: Hi everyone, this is Laura Rosenbloom, co-host of the Pulse podcast. This week I interviewed Lisa Soonan when she was in town as a guest lecturer for healthcare entrepreneurship here at Wharton. Really excited to share our interview with Lisa. Um, hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. Soon in. We are really excited to have her as a guest. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's a chance for Lisa. Um, Lisa hosts her own podcast, which we'll talk about in a second, but it's a chance for her to play guest for a change. Um, Lisa, you have so many impressive achievements from 15 years at the Silos Group to being part of the inaugural class of the Aspen Institute's Health Innovators Fellowship. You're a member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network. You worked for GE Ventures. Um, and to give a little snapshot of what you're up to currently, I'm going to read your Twitter bio. Okay, then. <laughs> um, to quote you, um, you're living at the nexus of tech, health, venture capital, and actual human reality. Currently at Manat, the Venture Valkyrie blog, Tectonics podcast, C Sweetener, and of course, Go Bears, which I think you mentioned in almost every podcast episode <laughs> that you do. <laughs>
1: So really appreciate you being here. Um, sure. I do feel like I'm cheating on Berkeley by being here
0: at <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned it. So Lisa just spoke in the healthcare entrepreneurship class, and she, of course, included Go Bears as part of that, too. Um, so really appreciate you taking the time and being here. Um, to kick things off, wanted to set the stage with the Tectonics podcast a little bit. Um, you and David Shaywitz host a popular health tech podcast. Um, Focused on, as you described, the people and passion at the intersection of technology and healthcare. Um, If you're a listener of the Pulse podcast, I think you would really enjoy Tectonics as well. Um, It's one of the reasons I was actually so excited to interview you, Lisa, um, to give you the chance to share more about your experience. You've had a number of really amazing interviews. Some of my favorites have been Zoe Berry from ZapRx, um, Matthew DeSilva of Notable Labs. Um, Those are just two that stood out to me as really exceptional interviews. Um, another one that stands out is your interview with Sam Brash of Kaiser Ventures, and you asked one of my favorite interview questions that I'm going to repurpose, <laughs> which is, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think that'll kick things off for kind of your career path. Today, okay, basically. so what
1: I wanted to be when I grew up um, was, uh, from a pretty young age, I want to be an investigative journalist in the political world. I saw All the President's Men when I was pretty young, whenever that came out, I forget what year it was. Great movie. And I was hooked. That was my plan. Didn't work out. That's awesome. So what, <laughs>
0: what did you do instead, obviously? The political um, journalist thing.
1: Yeah, I didn't do the political <laughs> journalist thing. I kind of wet my whistle journalist-wise on um, my my blog now. But um, I, um, I ended up doing a couple years working in software companies and marketing and, and, and communications. And then I joined a healthcare startup that at the time was called American Biodine. This is back in the late... 80s. Yeah, there we go. Trying to get my decade right. (laughs) And um, it was really, you know, before anybody talked about startups or any of that, you know, we we did not have venture capital backing. Um, We were a company focused on building high quality, responsive, you know, personalized approaches to treating people with behavioral health and substance abuse conditions. Um, We call it managed care, you know, now, but really it was you know, a pretty comprehensive, almost like a, you know, PPO system for, for mental health and substance abuse, carving it out from employers and payers. I was there, um, not at the first year. I, was, I joined later in sales and marketing and, and product areas for, in government, uh, market areas. It was great. I was there from the growth of the company from very small to, you know, to 800 million in revenue. Um, and we went public and, then we got acquired and then we took ourselves private and then we got sold. It was a wild ride. Nine years. Was wow. Wild.
0: Yeah. I think you've touched almost every area within healthcare technology and it's great that you kind of started out in the operating space. Yeah. Um, so wanted to um, talk a little bit about Venture Valkyrie. You had a post that came out just yesterday. It's hot off the press. The three essential questions that every investor must ask. And To summarize for our listeners, the three questions are, number one, is this idea a product or a company? Um, The second is, is this a charismatic person or a great leader? And the third is, is this a good idea or a good investment? Which I think is a really pithy breakdown of how to evaluate opportunities in this space. So I'd love to break these down and unpack some of the sentiments that you discuss in your blog post. Sure. Um, So the first question, is this a product or a company? Um, some of the companies you're talking about, um, you summarize kind of implying that they, they solve a vertical problem, but they're not sticky or not systematized within the healthcare space. Um, is there an example of this maybe that you can think of? Well, that- I think
1: the problem is more that they're niche that they might be very good. They might be solving a really, you know, important problem, but one that's small. And the challenge there is that the buyers in healthcare, and I'm mostly talking about on the clinical side, although it's true on the administrative side too to a certain extent. Most of the products, um, or most of the buyers in healthcare, don't want to buy a million different products from a million different vendors. They really like buying from just a few vendors that they rely on regularly. And so, if you're building an app to treat, you know, your left pinky finger, and now you got to buy another app from somebody else to treat your right pinky finger, you know, and I know it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, seriously, it's kind of the way it looks to the buyers. that mm-hmm. They get approached by hundreds and hundreds of, you know, makers of different um, digital health products, and they are frustrated and don't want that. So it's very hard to sell what you've got and integrate it into the system. And I think it's particularly challenging for those companies because they are sort of setting themselves up to be companies, not products to be sold in a trade sale in the short term more capital efficient model, you know, more like how pharma does it with biotech. Mm-hmm. And I think they're gonna struggle because they raise too much money, they get too bloated with overhead for what they actually can be. I think they're if they can be done very capital efficiently, they can they can be great.
0: It's interesting the the vendor model that you talk about, that these entities that they sell into are now working with hundreds of different vendors. Um, is there a sense that they're not only competing with the company that's exactly like them within the space that they're playing in, and then they're also competing with the vast set of, you know, fingers one through nine, if they're <laughs> finger 10.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think the simplest example of this is, is like if you're a hospital system and you've chosen Epic as your EMR, which you mostly have, yeah. um, you're mostly interested in buying more stuff from Epic, you know, the, the different modules the scheduling module, the wayfinding module, the whatever, if you can get it from Epic because it's easier. It's integrated. It's one vendor to point out if there's a problem. When people come to you and try to sell you separated products for scheduling or wayfinding or whatever it may be, um, best of breed, they may be much better products in some ways. You know, Now you have to go through the trouble of integrating. Now you have to go through the trouble of changing the workflow is it really worth it? And it's not often worth it to the buyer. Now, when you get deep into the clinical side and you say, okay, fine, I've got my clinical app for treating, you know, asthma mm-hmm. or whatever, and you go to the employers to sell it, the employers are not accustomed to contracting with this many companies directly, and and they're frustrated because they don't want to. So they'd rather see somebody come with a suite of products for your whole body or at least your head, you know, and... Um, limit the amount of exposure they have to different vendors. It's really complicated.
0: I'm curious how, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot in business school is thinking about how you can develop your own expertise in a certain area. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true of a lot of entrepreneurs is they go really deep on a specific problem. Like how do they strike that balance between, or how do you advise entrepreneurs that you work with and falling in love with a specific problem, but not being so specific that it, it creates this product over business.
1: I mean, yeah, it's always a challenge. I mean, being an expert in something is always helpful, right? Um, I think I think the challenge there is to decide whether you should build something completely separately or to try to go inside a large organization and build it. Um, and I think there's oftentimes a real um, romanticism of what entrepreneurship is. And, and it can be really cool and fun and great. I've had a great experience at it. Um, but it's also really, really hard. And so I think balancing the opportunity when you're an expert in something very narrow, you know and understanding how challenging it may be to sell your product is, mm-hmm. is very real. So I think you know having some perspective is good. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Um, so we started to touch on a little bit of the founder and who, who founders might be, whether they have expertise in a certain area. Um, So this brings me kind of to your second recommendation or question. Is this a charismatic person or is this person a great leader? Mm -hmm. What is your framework or how do you think about assessing great leadership skills and founders?
1: Great leaders hire great people. They establish a real esprit de corps with those people. They are um, not arrogant. They listen really well to their teams and to others um they but they're decisive and um once people have made decisions they enforce that and make people stay on the on the boat you know in a way that's constructive um they recognize their shortcomings and fill them with other things you know other people other capabilities other whatever and they recognize their own limitations when it's time to change their role you know um I always ask entrepreneurs when I'm meeting them, you know, and thinking seriously about funding them, whether they think um, there will come a time when they might not be the right CEO anymore and when that time might be. And I'm always a little leery of the people that say to me, I'm the only person that can ever run this company because usually that's just not true. Sometimes it is true. I mean, we definitely have great examples out there in the world of founders being the right person to run a company and the only person that really probably could have done it. But it's rarely true. And I think sometimes it is, it's always important for people to have self-awareness, you know. And, um, you know, when you get somebody who's very charismatic and, or, and also maybe very arrogant or confident to the point of they think they're the only person in the world that knows everything, you got to really worry. Sometimes people are very charismatic and don't think that. They're, they're just very charismatic, but they're not great leaders. They can't compel people to follow them in a positive way. Um, or they're afraid to hire great people because it might make them look weaker. Um, you got to kind of root that out as much as you can at the front end.
0: What are some, and I sort of asked this question thinking about um, a lot of our listeners who may be interested in working at startups, How? how would someone... Assess or what types of questions, either from the joiner perspective or the investor perspective, what are the ways other than spending time with someone that you can identify? Part of it is
1: spending time. Yeah. I mean, go like literally spending some time. Mm-hmm. Even if it's like taking a walk or going out for pizza or something, like getting out of the office is really good. I think also going and talking to the people that work with them is really important.
0: So I'm curious about this because I, I know in your blog post you mentioned reference calls. What is the best way to get at what you need out of a call like that instead of, you know, someone might have be surrounded by a network of people who will, of course, speak really highly of them, but you want to Well, first deeper. of all, I've
1: been amazed how many times I've been given a reference list and some of the people don't like the person who gave them the list wow. or gave me the list. I'm amazed how poorly people check their own references with people or how unself-aware that person might be. Um, and so that that's a good clue for starters. Um, number two... When you talk to the people on the reference list, ask them who you should call that's not on the list, because they may have suggestions, and you can do your own research about and network to people that aren't on the list about where those people have been before and why they left and what their experiences were of people who worked for them. Um, I think it's really important to go off the list. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because if people are at all self-aware, they they will give you, like you said, a list of their fans. Yeah. Um, So it's important to go elsewhere.
0: So, question number three: Is this a good idea or a good investment? Um, what is there a ceiling to how many small solutions that entities like providers or payers can handle? And you sort of you talked about it a little bit with that big mm-hmm. point that something like Epic, where it's a one stop shop, could always beat the smaller players. But I just see I've talked to I think I've spoken to four healthcare startups in the past week that all have pilots or are moving forward with contracts with Penn. Like, mm-hmm. what is the limit to the these massive institutions? How mm-hmm. how quickly they can move and working with some of these smaller entities?
1: I'm not sure there's a limit per se, but less is more, you know? And um, I think you also have to be aware of how big what you have can really get. I think people fool themselves into the total available market numbers. They aren't real honest with themselves about that a lot of the time. Um, And... How much of the market they can penetrate? I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard if we just get one percent of yeah. X market, <laughs> you know, we're rich. And um, getting one percent of any market can be really really hard yeah. if it's a large market yeah. and you have competitors. So, you know, I think I think part of it is thinking about the timeline over which adoption is going to take place. You know, mm-hmm. in healthcare, adoption is really slow. The companies that are succeeding now have been around for a long time, sometimes ten years or more. And so you have to be kind of aware of that risk that it's probably not going to be a five or six year endeavor. It's going to be a ten year or more endeavor to get to the promised land. And so I think when you're thinking about an investment and you have a time horizon and maybe your funds in its seventh year of life, you don't want to invest in a company that's at the beginning of a ten year odyssey. Mm-hmm. You know you gotta be thinking about switching to late stage at that point. Um, you know, I think you cannot get enamored of the technology. You have to think about the distribution issues, the reimbursement issues, the who's paying, you know, who's going to pay issue, regardless of how cool the stuff is. There's lots of cool stuff. Not all of it makes it.
0: Yep. Yep. That's The who's paying is rule number two on Lisa Soonen's
1: 13 rule rules of
0: health care, <laughs> which is a good transition because I wanted to ask you about this. Uh-huh. Um, so a couple of the rules really stood out to me. Um, obviously, we just talked about rule number two. If you aren't sure who will pay, you are doomed. And I've done a little bit of healthcare investing, um, and that's always the first question thanks to your rule, (laughs) Um, but rule number three really um, stuck out to me, and rule number three for our listeners is patients are the point. Don't forget to include them in design and testing. Um, This is obviously an important thing not to overlook because you want to make sure your end users are engaged and and there's actually value in what you're providing to them, Uh, but there's also a lot of caution around testing with patients, whether it's sensitivity, privacy, obviously outcomes. Um, what are some of the effective ways that you've seen companies go about actually testing with patients and who is getting this right?
1: Um, well, and obviously this is just, you know, more of the clinical stuff, stuff that's administrative. You have to go talk to the users. It mm-hmm. should say the users, but in any event, when it's clinical and it's patients, I think the people who get it right are those that sort of follow the lean startup approach. Talk to a hundred potential customers before you build anything. Um, I think that Lots of people are willing to talk. You, it's, it's finding the right people. That's the challenge. You can do it through focus groups. You can do it through um, social media, or at least finding the right people. There's lots of ways to find people. Uh, I think what you really have to be careful of is that you ask honest questions, that you don't create the answers by your question order or content, that um, questions you may not like the answers to. You know, and really let the people talk um, as opposed to direct them through the question list and give them things to touch and feel or try if you can. I, I You know, it's really um, amazing to me how many companies I meet with that are focused on patients who've never spoken to any and really don't know that people wouldn't pay for this, mm-hmm. you know, um, or what people would pay for it, which is a question you can ask, you know. Uh, So I I really encourage entrepreneurs to spend time on that. And when they come in and they haven't done that, that to me is a sign they're probably not going to be successful.
0: Uh, This is a good transition into rule number six, which is uh, consumers won't pay for things that they think insurance should cover, which I think is interesting because we've seen a big evolution in direct-to-consumer healthcare lately. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually just interviewed Mike Botta, who's the co-founder of Sesame, which is creating a direct-to-consumer marketplace for healthcare services at a fixed cost, so Patients or members don't have to go through mm-hmm. insurance, but can buy it um, just at cost. Um, so,
1: Is that for people with high deductibles? It's or? either for
0: people with high deductibles or for people who don't have insurance. So okay. the opportunity is there for both of them. Um, so are there other exceptions to this rule that consumers won't pay for things that they think insurance could cover? Because I think the the way that this is changing is that if something is convenient or lower cost, that's, those seem to be the caveats to this. Do you agree with that? Is,
1: no, I don't agree with yeah. that. Um, well, people who don't have insurance, that's a whole different mm-hmm. bucket altogether. I mean, if they don't have insurance, they need healthcare. they got to buy it somewhere. they gotta—they got to pay for it. Yeah. They have no choice. For people who do have insurance, um, just because it's convenient doesn't mean they'll pay for it. Um, for instance, there are people who are told, uh, many people who are told they need imaging. They need an MRI for their back or their knee or their whatever, right? And their doctor sends them to the health system that they belong to. And that health system happens to have a very expensive imaging program. And in the community where they live, there might be a much cheaper one. And they don't even bother to look and shop a lot of the time. um, Because they trust their doctor. They believe it matters which one they go to. And it might, but it usually doesn't matter that much depending on the depending on the quality of the place. There's high-quality places out in the communities. Uh, and there's also not high-quality places in the hospitals. <laughs> um, and they could be the opposite of both. <laughs> so I think, you know, doing a little research could get you a more convenient and less expensive option. But they don't. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, they just don't. Shopping and healthcare is still pretty new. And um, the most common way that people get their referrals is through their doctor or through their friend which is not a quality or cost, you know, answer. Right. Necessarily.
0: Yeah. Do you think that this dynamic of, do you think there's a a chance that it changes over time? Um, Because I I just think there's more companies now that are trying to get closer to consumers and circumvent insurance. So even if you don't agree today, in five to ten years, might this look different?
1: I don't know. You know, I don't think so. Um, but there are some companies that are successful with direct-to-consumer. Mostly, they're things that people are either embarrassed to go to the healthcare system for, like erectile dysfunction, or they are cons- really cosmetic more than they are medical, like things for wrinkles mm-hmm. or hair loss or whatever. Or they are things the op the other. The other extreme when people pay for things is when they have cancer or, you know, r- advanced rare diseases that really need any solution. They'll do anything, you know, to stay healthy or alive. Um, cancer patients spend a lot of money out of pocket trying things for themselves. It's pretty unusual, though. I think the we've tr- we've accustomed ourselves in the U.S. It's different in other countries, obviously. We've accustomed ourselves in the U.S. to believing that the... Insurance should pay for things, and I don't know that there's a good reason to believe that that's going to change anytime soon. There is more consumer awareness of healthcare, no doubt, but there's not been a lot of successful consumer pay solutions where there was an insurance option.
0: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Except
1: in the exa- examples I've given, right? Yes,
0: yeah, so those Might just be edge cases that, in this instance, Yeah, I mean, some of them are big market opportunities,
1: Mm -hmm. but they're not, you know, nobody's private paying for cardiology. Right,
0: right. I think, and in class you mentioned someone brought up this this instance of direct-to-consumer, and you talked about, I think, Q-tips and Advil or the other healthcare markets that exist that you don't need insurance for. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's, there's medical consumer markets like plastic surgery, you know, cosmetic stuff. There's, um over-the-counter consumer medicine, you know, like Advil and Q-tips, and the rest, by and large. Well, there's fitness, which is an edge case. You know, I mean, I don't think of that as medicine, but some people think about that in the medical sense. Um, But by and large, the medical stuff, people expect it to get paid for one way or another if they have some form of insurance. They know they have deductibles. That's a different issue. Right. Um, But they don't. Even, even surprisingly, when they have large deductibles, they don't shop as much as you'd think they would. That
0: is surprising, because in some instances, having a high deductible is basically the same as not having insurance from a financial perspective. It's very close. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. Rule number eleven: If it causes, if what it causes is worse than what it cures, you aren't done yet. Um, So I think this one was really interesting to me. Um, I'm curious in your experience, how willing you think people are to see the light about something. And I put air quotes around, see the light um, when something is actually causing something worse than what it cures. Because I think um, in healthcare, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mission driven objectives. And I think that motivates a lot of people in their day to or, day or how do you think people react or think about this, this rule? Have you seen people fall victim to it and, and not acknowledge when, they may have limitations.
1: Well, I think sometimes entrepreneurs expect consumers, patients to go to extreme measures to use their product and extreme by the definition of the user. Um, So, you know, you have to log on, you know, 20 times a day or you have to wear a patch and swallow a pill and use an app and all of that together, you know, is a hassle and they're just not going to do it. Um, I think... Um, there are products where they like literally hurt to use them, you know. And so, you know, I can think back on products I've tried where they come in and it's consumer direct product. All right, let me try it right now, you know. And you're like, ow, that didn't feel good, you know. Blood, t- a blood yeah. test type of thing or something. Um, so, you know, I think we have to be again. This is this is about getting enamored of technology and not of experience. You really have to understand how your product impacts the user or the patient. And if it's negative, if there's a sense that it's too hard or too painful or too whatever, it you know, you're just not gonna pay for it.
0: I feel like on on the user versus patient, I feel like there should be a word that's just like universally
1: used. And I know. it's I know, like member, sometimes it's user, sometimes it is it's depending it's, on who yeah, you
0: talk to, it totally yeah, changes. I agree.
1: It's really tough. <laughs> we'll and like you can one. offend somebody by saying the wrong word. Exactly, exactly. You know, if
0: probably. you ever call a an insurance company, if you say the word patient, oh, yeah. then it's,
1: yeah. Probably should just be person. Exactly.
0: The human at the end of this. We should exactly. all just remember they're human. Um, So the rules that we just went through are from your blog, Venture Valkyrie. Um, and I love the the little tagline, what would Lisa Soonan say, which is your widely read blog on healthcare <laughs> and healthcare investing. So um, something I've noticed in going through some of your past posts is that gender and uh, gender equity within the healthcare space is a huge theme of... Um, the work that you've done, the work that you've done with C-Sweetener, which for mm-hmm. our listeners is a not-for-profit company focused on matching women in and nearing the healthcare C-suite with mentors who have been there and wish to give back. Can you talk a little bit about your work in just representing sure. women in healthcare?
1: Yeah, you know, it was it's funny. I never really... I was one of those people who was like, I'm not a feminist. I never really thought about it that much. But somewhere along the line, I woke up moment. my God, I can go for weeks and not see any women, you know, except for like my cat, you know? So... um <laughs> I I got really frustrated by that and um, started spending a lot of time mentoring younger women in particular, um, you know, joining some women's organizations that really provided me with mentoring and support. And I realized pretty early on in my... Um, work at the Aspen Institute where I was supposed to come up with a, a, a thing, a healthcare thing, you know, that was part of my obligation back for the fellowship, um, that there were, there was a, um, marketplace opportunity, if you will, between people who wanted advice and mentoring and people who could provide it. And that oftentimes I was getting asked for advice on things that really wasn't my expertise. I mean, biotech, you know, founders coming to me and saying, tell me, you know, stuff about how to make a biotech company. I'm like, I don't know. It's not what <laughs> that I know.
0: Happens. <laughs> you know,
1: um, <clears throat> or who are asking advice in areas where I haven't had experience. And But I knew other people who I could refer them to in theory, but like I could spend literally my entire week doing that if I let myself do it. And I didn't have a finite amount of time. Um, so I created C Sweetener to solve that problem. It is literally like a matching, match.com marketplace type of thing for matching. Mentors and mentees, the women who are the mentees and men and women who are mentors, I actually sold that organization to the HLTH Foundation recently, and they're going to they're um, upgrading it and restarting it in the second quarter. They've announced, which is great. Um, I just feel like you know, in healthcare, this is such an important issue. It is also in investing, but in, in healthcare in particular. Um, so since most of the decisions, it's 85%, 80%, whatever, whoever has done the research, it's it's in that range, are made by women. And yet most of the companies are run by men. Some of them don't have any women anywhere near the executive level. 13% of healthcare CEOs generally are women. It's terrible. And it's especially terrible because they're not empathetic. You know, like, see rule two, right? It's like <laughs> they're not empathetic about the patient. And, and the buying experience, and so you get products that are mismatched and services that are mismatched. And when you amplify that by the fact that investors are mostly not women, you know, you also get uh, bias against companies that are led by women who are trying to solve the problem. So, I mean, not all all men are biased and not all women are great, but it certainly can do better. We can certainly do better.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, and it's it's been really refreshing, actually, to see – your perspective, because I think in addition to the representation, you just don't see many people commenting on on this as a, a problem. So yeah. it's been good. to
1: It's been more out in the open, I think, is. in the last few years, which is awesome. And, um, you know, I hope it stays out in the open. I hope it continues to get work. We are really far behind.
0: So we talked a little bit at the beginning about your mm-hmm. relatively new role at Manat mm-hmm. um, and that you've transitioned there, I think, a year and a half ago? Give uh, just over a, just ago. over a year ago. Just over a year ago. Can you talk about that uh, career transition for you and yeah. what you're up to there?
1: <laughs> so when I left uh, GE Ventures, a uh, place I really enjoyed working, um, but it was, you know, reasons uh, beyond my control that it was time to leave, um, The um, I was trying to decide if I wanted to go back to a venture role, if I wanted to go to an operating role, or if I wanted to go do consulting again, which I'd also done, done all three. And um, the chairman of Manat offered me an opportunity to do all three at one place. Um, So I have an operating role where I run the digital technology group. I have a consulting role where I work in the healthcare group consulting, and I work also to run their Manat Venture Fund. So I kind of went, yeah, well, it's hard to say none of that. (laughs) Um, it's a great company, it's really um, forward-thinking, it's a mixed organi- It's an organization that has a large consulting practice, a large legal practice, so a law firm, and also the venture funds, which is very unusual, I've never seen anything else like it. And it really puts pretty smart people together, I mean, I really am impressed by my colleagues every day, and um, very appreciative of the opportunity to work with them.
0: That's great. I think that's that definitely sounds like a really unique triple threat yeah trifecta it's cool yeah um any advice for a lot of our listeners are MBA students Um, we started to broaden our reach but any general advice for folks who are maybe in the job market looking for opportunities within the healthcare technology space any um, ways in which they should think about how they're pursuing their next opportunity
1: well I would say I I often get asked a lot about people who want to become venture people you know do you want to join the venture world I would say don't go straight there. Go through operations. You know, work at companies first. You, there's no substitute for that experience in when you're thinking about investing in a company or working with a company on problems they're having. Because by the way, when you're not working with them is when they're doing great. So they don't need you. <laughs> Whether they need you is when they're having challenges. And if you've never experienced any of those challenges, it's really hard to be a good counselor to those companies. Um, I also would say that um, I also get asked a lot about, should I join a startup or should I join a big company? And that's really a matter of personal taste. Um, but they're really different. And you have to um, understand the level of risk you're comfortable with and the level of resource support you're comfortable with and, and um, how much training you think you might need. You're not going to get any in a startup. You're going to go get shot out of a cannon hit be asked to do <laughs> things that you have no idea how to do. And some people thrive on that. And others really thrive on structure and, you know, fast growth and um, teams that are large and organized, and that you find at larger companies, you know, and resources to really do things really, really well. Um, and some people, you know, are bored for that. And, and you don't know until you know.
0: Yeah. You got to try it and yeah. see what clicks. And some
1: people are great at both, but not not a lot of people. Some people do better in one or the other. Few people do better. Few people do well in both environments.
0: Yep. That makes sense. So in the course of this podcast, we've covered (laughs) the fact that you write a blog, you host a podcast, you have a full-time job that encapsulates three very different areas within healthcare. Um, What do you do when you're not working? (laughs) Are you Uh,
1: ever not working? (laughs) Think about working. (laughs) Um, I um, have a family. Um, I spend a lot of time with them. Um, I play squash. Um, I do think of my writing as kind of a hobby, so that's kind of more fun for me. Um, I have a new puppy that I've been now spending a lot Love of time that. with. Love that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I work a lot. I do. But I kind of like it, you know? I mean, I used to, uh, do a lot more reading than I do now, but now since I do more writing, it's kind of the time I have is used for that. Yeah. But that's a real fun creative opportunity for me. Um, but I also love to be outdoors, and you know, I live in Northern California, where being outdoors is easy, and it's fun and beautiful. So yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my that's life. Great.
0: It seems like from your blog, you've been traveling quite a bit too. Yeah, internationally. I travel a lot. I
1: travel a lot for work, which is fun. I get to go speak in Barcelona next week. Wow. Um, hope to be back in Australia later this year. So you know, I you know, I like to, to do that. I, I really am am grateful that I have um a platform to speak for that people want to hear from me
0: yeah um
1: god knows they could uh, easily get sick of me since i have a lot of stuff out there
0: i don't think so you really cover a a range (laughs) and it's a very honest i don't know your recent post about your trip to japan and the toilets in japan
1: (laughs) that was what i've written for 12 years every week for 12 years i think and that article I wrote that piece I wrote about the joys of Japanese toilets might have been the most popular post I've ever written it was it was so funny I got so many emails after that from people saying they have those toilets at this restaurant or that hotel in America it was absolutely hysterical
0: that's hilarious you could make like a little map for people I could could. (laughs) well um You're obviously a super busy person, so really appreciate you taking the time, Lisa, and sharing a little bit from your perspective as the the guest this time with the Pulse Podcast. Thanks,
1: Laura. I was delighted to be here.